arrived, Rupert Guinness and Aaron S. Lee. I'm Aaron S. Lee. And I'm Rupert Guinness. Hey, Rupert. <laughs> <laughs> nice to be back here. Good morning. Oh, good morning to you, bud. I just, I just literally flew in. Yeah, welcome back, mate. Yeah, thank I'm you. Nice. Two and a half hours in customs. I know, I know. And that sounds like a long time. I saw the, the pictures already. Yeah. Uh, for those of you that, that um, obviously we don't have cameras here, so you can't see what we're doing. We're actually coming to you. Uh, recording live at the Lord Dudley here in our favorite haunt, and where Laura and Rupert just was hand delivered uh, his lunch. Yeah, I should correct myself. It's not the morning. I said good morning. It's actually two minutes past twelve. Well, yeah, uh, it's, yeah, it's it's morning somewhere though, Rupert. For someone yeah. <laughs> for someone listening, um, yeah, we're here at the Lord Dudley. This has been a kind of a favorite haunt of ours for a few years now, hasn't it? Yeah, a lot of great ideas have come up uh, here. From and the, a few bad ones. Yes, <laughs> from the bottom of a beer glass. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, this is uh, as a matter of fact. I think this is kind of where. We originally uh, kind of spawned this idea. And of course, we, we you know we, we had a couple of shows through Cycling News. We we had a weekly podcast called The Hub at one point. Yeah, we that, that took us to greatness. Didn't yeah, it? that went nowhere <laughs> fast. All roads lead back to the Lord. Yeah, they? exactly. So uh, while the while the podcast with Cycling News is no longer, we're still here, baby. <laughs> and cheers to you. Cheers uh, to you. Welcome to, back from Korea. Oh, Sound like it was a great yeah, race. Good to be. It was fantastic. Tour actually. to Korea. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, um, uh, the Orca Green Edge DS, uh, David McPartland, who was who was there for the for the Green Edge guys. And this is, by the way, for tour. Just came back from Tour of Korea, the 15th anniversary um, race. And look, it was an, it was a really good race. But as as he said, if you were a team that didn't have a sprinter, it was awful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it literally all eight stages were basically came down to a bunch sprint, and and of course they came loaded. Uh, with uh, young Caleb Ewan, twenty-year-old Neo Pro, a sprinting sensation. Yeah, he yeah. he came there. He's he's. Uh, we'll, we'll get more into Caleb later. But then, of course, they had Pro Continental team. They had three Pro Continental teams, including Australia's Drat Pack mm-hmm. Pro Cycling, and they brought uh, Walter Whippert um, from uh, obviously from the Netherlands. Yep. But uh, he's been a, he's been a pretty good rider, consistent rider for those guys over the the last two years. Of course, he. He got a great win to start the season on stage six of the Tour of Tour Down Under, and back in January in Adelaide. And if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't he get third? I believe on the People's Choice yeah, I Criterium. Did. I think it the seems a long time ago now, doesn't it? Oh, it does seem like a long. Oh. It, it does seem like a long time ago, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, like my life and someone else's. But anyway, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it, it it was a good race, and, and as, as he said, it would it would have been quite boring for some of the teams without a sprinter. Um, of course. We talked about uh, Avanti Racing last week and had a chance to, to see those guys in action. The Continental Team, uh, New Zealand registered Continental Team, and they brought uh, Kiwi, 24-year-old Patrick Bevan, um, who just looked the goods all week. He, he, I think he finished uh, of eight days. He had seven podiums. The only day that he did not reach the podium was on the first day where he cr- got caught up in a crash that involved Caleb Ewan. Uh, Mitch Docker, who took some pretty serious injuries and was able to recover, and that was a little bit of a little argy bargy with uh, I think one Graham Brown from oh, Draft Pack. The race wouldn't be a race without a bit of argy bargy from Brownie, would it? <laughs> Brownie, <laughs> Brownie sharpened his elbows a bit for that race, yeah. but uh, that, that was the only day that uh, Patrick Bevan didn't reach the podium. Uh, five second place finishes to young Caleb Ewan, but uh, he also got a third place, but he also won a stage. He, he upset. Caleb, so to speak, on stage four, I believe, and uh, I don't have the notes in front of me. I'm, I'm sure our 
our listeners will correct us on social media if we're wrong. Um, but yeah, I think it was it was stage four, and he really looked the goods, Rip. I had a chance to to talk to Shane Bannon, who was there on the last day he flew in. Uh, he came in for the glory. Didn't he? he did. He did, and, and oh, so did. And by the way, and so did Caleb's parents. <laughs> so, so yeah, like, you know, I was booked on the flight as well. You know, but. Couldn't quite, make, couldn't quite make the numbers no, everyone else was getting on board. No, exactly. Well, the rumor was that, literally the rumor was that Jerry Ryan was there. And not only was there a rumor that Jerry Ryan was flying in, but there was a few people that had seen, that actually saw him there. But he was not. <laughs> Needless to say. But both there could have been another Jerry Ryan because there was another Aaron Lee, wasn't there? There was another Aaron Lee. He said to just duplicate things. Yeah. Over did, did you see? It? Look, and I don't. I, and I don't want you to. I don't want you to worry because you may have seen online that. Uh, I took part in the new Aaron Lee show. We launched the new Aaron Lee show while we were there. Yeah, yeah we haven't seen the second part yet. Yeah, it, it, listen. That, Before we speak about the third. Yeah, yeah there, <laughs> there may not be. That could be the first and last. Hashtag just so. <laughs> Hashtag FFS. Hey, listen. <laughs> no, but, uh, we had a we had a great time. And, but I remember, um, but you know, Shane Bannon both saying, uh, David McParland saying, even Brownie that uh, Patrick Bevin should be world tour. We'd probably be expected to see him. Maybe even step up, stagiaire, uh, you know, something, contract, maybe even this, this year. Well, that's where those type of races are good. I mean, it's obviously it was important for um, for Caleb, and it was a huge win for him and, and his teammates to do that because there's pressure and well, there's expectation on him to, to perform, and they delivered the goods, but it's also a great platform for riders like Bevan to um, show what they've got, show their potential, and probably more importantly, show they're hungry, you know, and, um, and they can back up. Uh, as you said, he got a number of places, but he obviously wasn't shy about backing up each day and giving it a crack, and um, that's great, you know. I think uh, it'll be very interesting to see whether he does get a stagiaire's position at the end of the year. We're, we're going to talk a little bit more about Caleb, and we're going to talk about Patrick Bevan a little bit later in the show as well, but... Uh, yeah. We can talk about me now. Well, we, we can, but before we do, let me just ask you a quick question, though. Oh, yeah. Obviously, Orville Greenwich, the first World Tour team to race Tour de Korea in 15 years. Obviously, I think there was a bit of sponsorship obligations there, from what I understand, why they were there. Um, there were three, I think three, maybe four Pro Conti teams. I know uh, Nippo Vinny Pantini, Team Novo Nordis, Draft Pack, and I, I may be missing one. Uh, but then the rest of the field was Continental teams. But, uh, you know, for the Avanti racing team to step up and, and do so well and outshine three, three more experienced um, higher, you know, obviously deeper pockets, pro Conti teams, says a lot. Hmm, certainly does. I mean, they, they obviously put a major focus on this race. Not saying the other teams didn't, you know, but, um, but obviously uh, Vondi were, you know, prepared to step up and, um, you know, throw caution to the wind, and they did, you know, and they got the rewards for it. I think, uh, you know, that would have been very heartening for, for them and their sponsors and, um, uh, you know, just uh, it's interesting to show that when they're wanting to step up, they can make that move. So, wherever that team goes to in the future, I know there's been talk, hasn't there, Aaron, about the future of the team developing? You know, getting uh, you know up to pro conti or even higher levels in the long term. Um, they're heading the right way anyway. They're giving it a go. You know, one of the big issues that they're facing this year, coming back for the second half of the NRS season, is that there's been there's been word that the Tour of Murray and the Tour of Gippsland has been dropped. Yeah, and that, that's going to really affect them because obviously uh, teams like the Bonte Racing Team, and, and that said, all the the National Road Series teams um, have pretty much built their program around those races this year. Yeah, well, that's a you know a major problem for the NRS, I think, and you know for uh, for our listeners outside of Australia, NRS the National Road Series, 
Um, you know, it's taken a long time trying to get it up to the level where it is, but now to lose, you know, to lose races, um, you know, obviously they're going to have to rethink how to better structure the series, I think, where it's got to be, um, you know, it's got to be within reach of, of all, a number of teams. You just can't have one or two teams being able to go as well. That's, maybe we're sidetracking a bit here, but, you know, the, the national series should be within reach of uh, a large proportion of the teams, if not the majority of the teams. And, um, you know, but if you're dropping races, uh, that's not good either, particularly uh, races which were ostensibly good good stage races, you know? Absolutely. Look, we're going to talk more about the NRS. We're going to talk more about Avanti Racing Team, the Tour of Korea, Caleb Ewan. We're going to talk a little bit about triathlon. I understand there's a, there's a few races uh, in triathlon up in Kansas this weekend with the 70.3 and the Ironman. We're going to try to get uh, Phil Rockner back on the show. Um, he was up there on the ground for firstoffthebike.com. We're going to talk to him. And then uh, nice I think we're going to talk, uh, we're going to talk Dauphiné as well. There's, a little, yeah. there's races over in Europe. Yeah, Dauphiné. A lot's been happening over in Europe. Absolutely. And, of course, you've got a couple of uh, special interviews uh, that you recorded over in Europe with uh, a couple of guys as well. Yeah, yeah. We've got an um, interview with Jacinto um, uh, Vidat who is the uh, confidant, uh, personal attaché of Alberto Contador. We had, a, we had a good little chat about Alberto, the person, what's he like, and how is he going to back up for the Tour de France, which is just around the corner after his Giro d'Italia win. And we also caught up with uh, an old travelling partner of mine, Mr Andy Hood, who is the Velo News European correspondent, which I used to be in the bygone era. Absolutely. Um, and of course now you write for the rival. Yeah, right. For, well, right for no, Sydney Morning Herald. Oh yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely. Well, well, exactly. And for those, you know, I guess we didn't go through the introductions, but we'll do that. <laughs> yeah. But before we do, I'm gonna have a bite of my meat pie. Absolutely. While, while Rupert uh, finishes his lunch, and uh, we're gonna go back to we're gonna maybe play some, play a little bit of music and uh, have a, maybe a word or two from our sponsors, and then uh, be back with more. What a ride!
and Aaron S. Lee. Uh, we're here at the, at the Lord Dudley, one of our favorite places here in Willard in Sydney. Um, you know, it's, it, Rupert just polished off his lunch. Well, what did you have? Well, talk about what a ride, it was what a pie. <laughs> <laughs> it looked delicious. It was delicious. meat pie. It was meat pie. Tomato sauce. Well, ketchup, as you Americans like to call it. We do like to call it ketchup, mm-hmm. I tell you. Um, you know, we, we didn't, no meat pies in Korea. There was no meat pies in Korea. And uh, while the food was, was fantastic, as you know on the road, it is the same food morning, noon, and night. Yeah. Well, so I where, think that, where do you get, I mean, tell me, where do you, where do you get that? <laughs> we, we had a little bit of a, t- a technical difficulty. My micro recorder just completely going off. I think we were listening to a little bit of a Caleb Ewan interview right there. Yeah, was I was wondering where was my mobile, everything went buzzing. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you, Aaron, you know, like you're on the road in Korea. I mean, tell us the real stories. Like, well, you know, when the sun, that, when the sun you know, dips behind yeah. the world and, uh, you know, what's it like? Can you get a good beer? In okay, good question, Ruth, and I'll tell you. I, I, well, no, nothing. And, and I, I've got to be honest with you. Two, two, two real sticking points that I find in all of the Asia tour races. Of course, while you're traveling first class and going to all the big European oh, races and, and the world tour and the, and the grand tours, I am have, I have the unofficial king of the Asia tour. And uh, things are a bit different. I, I, and they're only close. Absolutely. Listen, not, not, not one good cup of coffee while I was there. Everything was pretty much the Nest Cafe, the instant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, as you know, when, when you're on deadline and you're, you're coming off a, a stage finish, you get back to the hotel, the media center, there is nothing better than having a beautiful, nice, ice-cold beer at the, at the hotel bar mm-hmm. to really get you into your groove. And uh, none of that. We stayed at some really beautiful, beautiful hotels. Not one bar. Not one cafe, nothing. And the only time I think we managed to find a bar was a convenience store on stage six, after stage six. Uh, and I kind of stumbled upon a little after-hours uh, beer with, uh, with ACJ and the Avanti team. Uh, management only, of course. Of course. Wink, wink. Yes. And then... <laughs> Riders don't drink, do they? Yeah, no, not at all. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit of my advice to start. So it was, uh, so it was a, a bit of a dry... 
a dry June there uh, as far as uh, Tour of Korea goes. But look, the, the, the people, the, the hospitality was amazing. A bit of a scare, a bit of a scare in, um, with the, I think it's the, the Mears, the, the MERS, the, oh, yes, yes. Uh, the bit of a health scare. It's the, um, it's a bit of a plague that's happening right now in, in, uh, in South Korea. It's originated there. It's kind of ground zero. We were a bit afraid that there might be a quarantine issue when we were leaving Korea. Australia. Should I be? Should we be doing this show now? Should well, I be sitting here. With probably you? not. As, you probably shouldn't be holding my hand. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I'm glad no, not sharing beer glasses. No, absolutely. Well, we do have two straws, thankfully. <laughs> but no, it was a, it was a good time. But listen, one of the things uh, while we we're there, we, we mentioned that uh, uh, Caleb Ewan did an amazing job. A bit of a homecoming for the young uh, Australian writer. His mother, um, a Korean, um, Cassandra. She left, I believe, when she was ten years old. Um, his father, Australian, uh, Mark, um, they surprised Caleb uh, uh, right, right prior to the start of Stage 7. Um, he won Stage 7. We're going to finish uh, Stage 8, uh, I think in fifth place, but, but maintain the overall. He kind of locked that in with an intermediate sprint finish. Uh, he took the intermediate sprint points, the second one, uh, for bonus time. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was just a great time for him. Had a chance to catch up with him right after Stage 8. And uh, let's go to that footage. We're here at the finish of the 2015 Tour of Korea, and I guess you could say, Caleb, after four stage wins, both points and general classification, it's been a pretty good week at the office. Yeah, I, I mean, they, the team wanted me to get yeah, at least one stage win, and, and that was the goal, so to come away with four, and then the young rider, GC, and sprint classification is a massive bonus, and and the main thing was uh, I got to work with the guys and we really got to work on our lead out. So, you know, that was the main goal coming here is to, to really gel as a team. And, and they were awesome this week. So I'm really happy with them. You know, you, you, you talk about gelling with the team. I've had a chance to see you over the course of the year from the majority of your 10 wins. And what did it mean to see Adam on the podium with you as well? Because obviously while it wasn't targeted for him to finish so high in this step, it showed that he's been there with you along the way. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've pretty much done all my races with Adam. So, yeah, it was really nice to, to have him on the podium with me. And, and yeah, I think it's a, it's a bonus for him as well being on the podium. You know, Matty White told us back in December that, you know, they'd only kind of targeted about five wins for you this year. Was that a case of, you know, under, you know, estimating or you just completely overachieving this year? Um, you've done. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't think I've overachieved. Um, I, I think, yeah, I've done what I, what I've expected to do. So, yeah, I'm happy with how the year's gone. But yeah, I'd still like to to get a few more wins and and hopefully bigger wins. You know, you've had you know under 23 national titles. You've had junior world track championships. This year is, a, is your first full year as a professional road cyclist. How does this week and these wins measure up? Um, yeah, they're they're obviously a highlight of my career, and, and yeah, it's nice to nice to work with the with the professional team. You know, I'm still you know I'm still a fan of cycling, so to have uh, you know Orica Green Edge team riding in front of me, helping me win these races, is is really special. You know, we mentioned earlier in the week uh, that it was a bit of a homecoming view of sorts. There's been a lot made um, of your Korean side of the family, your mother Cassandra, um, your father Australian, Mark, he's here. They're, they both surprised you uh, yesterday, the night before, and flew in to watch this. How has it been, uh, how special has it been having them here uh, to celebrate this week? Yeah, it's nice because I haven't seen them for a while now since I left Australia. So, yeah, it was, it was a nice surprise having them here. And, 
and I, I'm glad I could pull off the, the overall for, for them. And, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's really nice. Now your mom said that uh, you guys have stayed in contact while you're at your new home in Monaco um, via Twitter, Skype, Viber, a few things. But she said that you might could maybe call home a little bit more. Yeah, I think <laughs> most mums are like that. You know, they they always want to speak to their children, but yeah, I speak to her enough. I think. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Cheers. So, Caleb, you and Ruth. Yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, great words by him, and uh, you know, he's a pretty classy guy, isn't he? He's always recognising the people behind him, the people who helped him, from his teammates to his family to his friends. Uh, Nice little mention there, though, he made about Adam Blythe there, too. He got onto the podium on that last day. So, no, abso- uh, absolutely. You, know. you, you had a chance to talk to Caleb right before, uh, right after the Lane Cowie, but, but right before Tour of Turkey. And, and he wrote the story for Cycling, Cycling News, I believe. And he's, he mentioned that he was, he was struggling a bit, that having some difficulty making that transition and that move to Europe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the... the there was the transition, the actual physical transition, as which he spoke about, you know, him setting up his base in Monaco and living alone and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, but also just the, the, the pace of the World Tour peloton. Um, you know, of course, Tour de Korea wasn't a World Tour race, but it, uh, he was saying that in races like Volta, Catalonia, he had trouble with the, uh, with the pace and the climbing. It's just a constant, incessant pace, and uh, there's another level. And, um, you know, so he was struggling with that a little bit. When I say struggling, you know, it's, yeah, no, he said he was struggling, so... We're not going to dance around that, but it's interesting that he's been able to sort of uh, uh, account for that, deal with that, and move on. Uh, he hasn't taken it as a negative experience, he's taken it as a positive. It just shows him what he's got to work towards from a future point of view for his career. But at the same time, it's you know, races like Tour de, de Korea, which Oracle Green have, have set aside for him as races they want him to win in, um, he's matching that expectation, if not doing better, as he said, four stage wins. Overall, the points jersey, it was a young rider's jersey. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he went there with the goal of winning one stage. So, um, uh, gee, he probably should have just won the team's classification on his own either. But he would still <laughs> want to share that with others anyway. No, exactly. You know, you know, they actually made it a real point to say, even earlier in the season, Matty White told us both, they said, look, you know, we only, we'll be happy with five wins. We don't want to rush him. We don't want to put too much pressure on him. And, of course... Uh, they said the right things prior to uh, Tour of Korea as well and said, look, we're here for one stage win. But in all reality, I mean, Ruth, every stage was came down to a bunch sprint. They saw that on paper. And being the only World Tour team, were they just saying the right thing? Or, or deep down, did they feel the pressure that they need to come away with the GC? Well, look, gee, I don't know. You know, I mean, I guess they're only own their heart and hearts, weren't they? I mean... Uh it's an uh, interesting sort of uh, idea. I guess you know, maybe in time we'll hear about that. Maybe we can get uh, Cal back on the show you know, in the future, further down the track. Wouldn't mind just asking a little question. Uh, Michael Hepburn, he, you've got to remember, he just came straight off a very hard Giro d'Italia. He did. And, and I, I mean, he must be feeling pretty tired now. That's almost four weeks now, four and a half weeks in straight racing. Absolutely. I actually t- had a chat with him prior to stage one in Busan. And I, I'll tell you, um, there was an amazing crowd support, a lot of fan support. Obviously, with, with Caleb's own routes to Korea, uh, there was a massive fan following there. But I had a chance to talk to Heppy, and uh, he said, look, his legs were, were, were pretty rooted, <laughs> so to speak, um, yeah. after the Giro. But i got to tell you, he put on a clinic all week, and like all the riders on the team, including Lee Howard, Adam Blythe, uh, and I'm going to miss uh, Jens Morris, um, all, all the riders, they really they came to they came to ride in support of, of Caleb. And as the week went on, 
their world tour experience and their being a class above did show, especially on those later stages that did have a few categorized climbs towards the end, when other teams were losing two, three, four riders, they still, Caleb still had his full complement of riders going into, into the sprint. And as you know, Caleb's hard enough to be on a sprint on his own, much less when he's got the full support of his team. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, Heinrich Hassler found that at the Nationals, you know. Oh, no, no, oh, close. That. But he almost did. <laughs> he almost did. He almost right, because did. he's put, you know, his chain broke. Eh? No, absolutely. absolutely. No, no, no. Heinrich actually gave Caleb a lesson, didn't no, but, Really, I mean, it, it but the, serious, And, of course, and how good was Caleb's comment afterwards? He said, look, you know, it came close. It's disappointing, but... I think I've got about 15 more years to keep trying. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> that was classic. One more thing on Caleb. Um, you know, they did mention five wins. He's, he's got ten wins now. His first, his real biggest win today is is in that homecoming, so to speak, uh, at Korea, which is, is great for him. Uh, in, in talking to Caleb all week and, and watching him perform, we mentioned that he has a lot of poise. He's a, he's a very grounded young man. What I see, though, is a young man that's 20 years old, that he's, he's, he's quite grown up. And, and, and looking at him, and I asked him this a few times this week, are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying watching it? I had a, I had a chance to watch him pin his first, his first GC jersey, or his first you know, leader's jersey on in Lane Cowie. And, and these are moments that I'm finding very special as a journalist, watching this young man evolve, much like that you've had a chance to do with, with Cadell Evans back in the day when he was making that transition from mountain biking to road. I just don't know that he is taking it in. Um, you know, it's probably pretty hard for him to take it in because, you know, while like I said, while we're not seeing him on every single World Tour race, and we're not going to see him in the Tour de France, exactly. You know, sort of thing. Plus, I heard some people suggest that he should do the Tour. But that would, I mean, I'd be very disappointed if they did put him in the Tour. I wouldn't say that's the right thing. But to answer your question, um, I, I think the year's moving so fast for him. He probably just isn't getting time to sit back and actually really enjoy it, you know, and I think that's just probably part of the, the life of, of, a, of a professional cyclist, whether you're in World Tour or Pro Conti, the whole year's very, very long, you're racing so often, and if you're not racing so often, you're, uh, you're, you're training or preparing in some sort of way. So. He, he did say that he felt like he hasn't really raced a lot this year, but it, it seems like a long year. Yeah, but you know, Oregon Green Edge, they race less than most teams, a lot of teams yeah. in their race days, they actually... Um, uh, which is something I've just sort of worked on. Another thing I was talking about quite a while ago about how they deliberately race less than others because they want their, their teams to be um, one, fully healthy, fully fit and mentally charged, ready to go for a race, not sort of turning up for races just to sort of make numbers and get the appearance money and just Absolutely. to go through the motions. And, and one thing Shane Bannon told me on Sunday was that, hey, um, knock on wood, we have a full. Oh, that hurt. <laughs> we have, we have, sorry about that. I didn't get your eye. Um, <laughs> they have a full complement of their riders. They're 26 riders as opposed to some teams 30, but all their riders at this very moment are all healthy and, and in form. So that's, that's a good thing. Uh, before we go to commercial break and, and, and play, a little, play a little music, um, uh, one last thing on Caleb. We, t- we talked about him finding that struggle. One thing that his mother, Sandra, said that. Uh, um, that she's appreciated is by Caleb moving to Monaco. He has had a couple of big brothers like Simon Garrens, teammate Simon Garrens, and uh, Michael Matthews and some of those guys, and even mentioned Richie Port, uh, Team Sky, obviously a fellow Australian, but Team Sky rider, Richie Port, who also calls Monaco home, as guys that have been there as a, a bit of a support group and, and uh, brothers to, to Caleb. Yeah, well, I mean, that's really important. I mean, they all, 
you know, even if they're on opposite teams like uh, Richie and, and Caleb, but even you know anyone who knows Simon Gerrans, you know, he 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 regards his career and preparation uh, obviously so so important and so detailed, but he's also very conscious of the fact that there's a young rider on the rise coming into the team, and, and he embraces that responsibility of mentoring you know riders like him. And I think from Michael Matthews' point of view, he's still pretty young. Michael Matthews, I wouldn't say he's a seasoned veteran yet. But it's interesting to see that he's actually you know, wanting to help um, a young guy like uh, Caleb come through. I mean, you know, he's you know, a few years younger, but in race terms, you never know. Things turn around very quickly. But I'm sure Michael Matthews, is, uh, you know, his support for Caleb is, it's, it's, it reflects the culture of that team. You know, everyone's got to help each other sometime, whether it's in the race or out of the race. Absolutely. If you're his neighbour. Um, or her neighbor, because you've got Oracle AIS as well. Absolutely. Well, listen, five wins was, is what they wanted from Caleb. He's at, he's sitting at 10. We're still just halfway he, through he the can season. Take all the rest of this year, next year off. <laughs> exactly. I asked him that. They, I asked David McFarland that. He said, no way. <laughs> so, listen, I think there'll be more. We'll be hearing a lot more from Caleb Ewan. And you'll be hearing a lot more from Water Ride and Rupert Guinness and Aaron Esley live from the Lord Dudley here in Willara and beautiful. Sydney, Australia, right after these messages. Reach out, touch faith.
reach out and touch faith. Hey, we're back with What a Ride with Rupert Guinness and Aaron S. Lee. I'm Aaron S. Lee. And I'm Rupert Guinness, and I haven't had another pie. <laughs> no, you have not, although i got to tell you, it did look delicious. My, my stomach's a bit rumbly. I, I, I may want one myself. Listen, while I was in Korea, we talked about what I was doing, but what have you been doing? I was doing my best. At what? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, it's been interesting. I've been uh, obviously been uh, watching the uh, cartoon The Dauphino. Uh, unfold in France with Chris Froome's eventual win. Yeah, they talk but to me about that. It's late at night, but I mean, during the days, uh, you know, I've been uh, working my rugby um, round, you know, for the City Morning Herald. Um, the big news with rugby, just very briefly, the Super Rugby Finals uh, are about to start next week with the qualifying finals. The defending champions, Isabel's Waratahs, uh, won their last game last Saturday against the Queensland Reds, round 18, and that secured them a home final in Sydney in two weeks. Uh, the Brumbries have gone over to South Africa to go play their quarter uh, qualifying final. Um, so that's all wrapping up nicely. But we had a Wallabies, uh, the national team, the Wallabies, they had their launch of their World Cup jersey uh, last week, Wednesday, and they invited all the media to go into the locker room, take a position in the locker room where there was a jersey and all the kit waiting for each one of us. Oh, so you got a jersey? Shorts, and uh, and, and we... Uh, and i got to tell you, you, you look... I didn't realise that was the jersey, but you look fantastic in it. Those shorts uh, are riding no, a bit no, high. No, no. <laughs> and we did a skill session with the uh, with the Wallabies. And, um, How'd you get it? Uh, I didn't do the tackling because of my shoulder. I had yes. a shoulder operation last yeah. May. Which is giving you a bit of trouble at the moment. Yeah, well, it is now because of this Wallaby session. Oh, great! <laughs> we did. I went to that line-out session, you know, and I was all right with the throws. And then I and then when I was doing the, the lifts, uh, I saw them lift a couple of people first. And I thought, oh no, I have a. You know, I was confident that they wouldn't drop me. And I asked them, you know, uh, not to, not to. They are professional <laughs> rugby players. They've done this before. They've done this before. They're big boys. Yeah, they're big boys, big strong boys. So what happened? They dropped me. Did they really? Yeah, yeah, so I took a roll, a bit of a roll on my shoulder and stuff. So I'm not really, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's just a bit of a strain and it hasn't sort of, uh, you know, uh, opened up. Really can again. I ask you, Rube, how long have you been covering the, the Wallabies of rugby here in Australia? Oh, for me, I'm just a young buck with rugby. I started covering it in 2002, so, so could, could 13 years. Okay, so could that, there's still a lot of, there's a lot of articles, a lot of water on the bridge, a lot of, a lot of stories. Uh, could this be a bit of? Could that be an intentional of a bit of payback? <laughs> um, you never know. I mean, I did I for did, one or two yarns. Uh, that may have put someone on one or two players who were there who I did suggest beforehand. I don't want to see any, you know, uh, stab kicks in the eye or anything like that, just by coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Well, cause these get, things happen. Because you got to admit, there hasn't been a lot of a lot of positives to write about when it comes to the Wallabies the last couple of years. No, no, but they're on an upward spiral. I hope you know. I think under the coach Michael Checker, uh, you know, uh, there is there is cause for for confidence. You know, you've got to go into the World Cup year with with confidence. Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, you know, I just think it's uh, it's going to be a massive year. The World Cup in England in September, in Britain, I should say, and uh, you know, you've got the usual favourites like the All Blacks, but obviously England, Ireland, and Wales. Australia's in the pool of death with yeah. Wales and. England and Uruguay and Fiji. You, know, so, you, did, you didn't mention South Africa. Of course, well, they'll always be a contender too, yeah. but they're not in the pool. Of, we don't have to worry about South Africa yet. 
Yeah. That's later. You know, we have to get out. Australia has to get out of the pool. Now, I, I'm mentioning South Africa. That's for you, Neil Walker, if you're listening, the Avanti Racing Team uh, bike mechanic. That is for you, sir. <laughs> or for Daryl Ippy. Uh, or, or for Daryl Ippy as well. But listen, I have to. It'd be hard. You, you got to think the the All Blacks are always a favorite going in, though. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're such a consistently good team. They've been number one and number. I mean, you know, it's like they just they're just always there. Um, I guess everyone likes to see come World Cup time uh, how they respond. Obviously, they won the last World Cup uh, when the World Cup was in New Zealand. But this year's World Cup, I think, is going to be another level altogether because with the cup being held in Britain. It's pretty much the home of rugby, and um, it'll be a fantastic uh, event, I think, no matter who you support and where you're watching it from. Now, that said, going back to cycling a bit, there's, there's, still, there's still a lot going on. You mentioned Dolphin A. Now, I didn't have a chance to really stay on top of it. I watch, I definitely watched the uh, results and see how that was going. But Rowan Dennis... Right, right off in the mix, right from the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, what was important for, for Ryan was that it was a good sign that he is tracking on really good form. Obviously, he had an important role in the uh, team time trial, and they got the win there, and then he got the yellow jersey. Uh, obviously, he wasn't going to go and win the, uh, the Dauphiné, but that was an important uh, spell for him in the yellow for experience and also for helping set up uh, his American leader, TJ Van Garderen, to take the yellow jersey later on. Obviously... Uh, you know, Van Garderen lost the jersey on that last day and uh, that sort of superb photo by James Start, uh, my friend in, uh, who lives in Paris and been shooting cycling for a long time and he had a picture of TJ leaning against the wall just after, you know, losing the yellow jersey. He sort of showed that sort of despair or his aspiration for doing it. But, you know, that was obviously very good. You know, I think the BMC team will be going into the Tour de France now pretty confident of a... TJ will be on his best level to give it his best crack at, uh, at, at a podium. Um, I think the podium may be a bit short for him, but he's justifiably got to go in there with ambitions of that at least. And um, for, for uh, Rowan Dennis, um, you know, obviously got the World Hour record earlier this year, and after two down under and national championships, you know, it was a pretty exhausting start to the year. And I think it was good that they gave him a bit of time to sort of don't worry about results, just recover. I think it's easy to underestimate how much the hour record takes out of you as well. But just to recover um, and then just chip away and get your form back again. And he's shown that he's been able to respond that way and he's on great form for the tour. And Chris Froome, obviously. Yeah, we can't forget the winner of the race, yeah, can yeah. we? Um, yeah, I mean, what do you say? I mean, Chris Froome, he's, he's, he's thrown himself out there, uh, you know, as, as uh, deserving of his billing as one of the, the big four who have been competing for the tour with uh, Alberto Contador. Um, Nero Quintana Vincenzo. and Vincenzo Nibali. So uh, things are tracking pretty well there for a fantastic tour battle. Well, you know, you can't you can't mention the hour record or Chris Froome, uh, Team Sky, without talking about t- Chris Froome's former teammate and new hour record holder, uh, one mm-hmm. Sir Bradley Wiggins. And by the way, he smashed the previous record, but not without a bit of controversy. No, well, uh, one of us is a superb ride by by. Bradley Wiggins, you can't deny that it was, uh, and 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 he was. But he was riding more. a spaceship. Apparently. He was hoping for more. You know, he, he still he still set a, a very strong mark, which I think is going to stand there for a while. Um, look, I mean, that's uh, you know the, the question. You know, there was a debate, wasn't there, about whether it was a 
um, uh, legal bike, wasn't it? Or was it? It's not a production bike. Yeah, and also did he get excessive uh, support from British Cycling? Absolutely. Well, I mean, British Cycling did respond back and said they they offered uh, Alex Dowsett from Movistar support, but he had a pro tour team. That will to a team that was supporting him anyway, and let it be clear, it wasn't Alex Dowsett no. who made that. I mean, exactly. And his ride was—you can't talk about the hour record and not recognise Alex Dowsett's performance. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and Alex Dowsett has been—he's been very uh, complimentary to, to, to Wiggins' yeah, accomplishment. Yeah, yeah. That's been Alex Dowsett's coach yes. that has been more vocal yeah, yeah, about yeah, the, yeah. the bike. Yeah. But I, I sort of—I mean, now obviously I wasn't there, so you don't know exactly who said what and what was said in what context at the time. You know, from initial con- comments that you know but um, you know it's the UCI said they signed off on the bike yeah so if they say they signed off on the bike if it's not correct whose fault is that then I mean absolutely I mean it's, well, we're, we're, it's almost like the like we mentioned last week's show the port gate uh, when it when it came down to where the Giro d'Italia yeah. said kudos on the wheel change and then a few minutes later Shame on you with the UCI. Yeah. So there, uh, there is a, a bit of a conflict uh, and a, a bit of uh, role reversal yeah. on both Consistency seats. isn't the UCI's strengths no, in no. judgment, Paul, put it that way. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I, you know, at the end of the day, I just think, you know, uh, Wigan's uh, you know, wow record was a superb performance and yeah. we've got the right person holding the record at the moment. And, and let's, let's also keep in mind, Alex Dallas has come out and said, you know what, he raced a conservative hour record. And he wouldn't mind having a crack again. Well, Robert whether, Dennis did too. Yeah, whether it's this year or in eight weeks or eight years, he'll give it another shot. Well, Rowan Dennis has already said he'll give it another shot. He told me before Alex Dowson's record that he would like to do it sometime, and he felt he could have done, done gone, uh, gone further than what he did before Alex Dowson's record, but he said it again recently, you know, so, which is great. You've got. You know, to, you've got riders there who are, who are setting it as career goals, but they realise it takes a lot of preparation. It's got to be the right time within their career. So they're probably both looking at it towards, you know, um, you know, towards the back end of their careers to have another crack. Well, know? one thing that I'd like to see is one Rupert Guinness have a crack. I've, I've seen you. I've seen you on a time trial bike, a, a Trek Speed concept. I've seen you. And uh, you're quite good. Now, listen, if you were to break the record, would that then be a Guinness hour record? <laughs> can you just imagine Guinness probably suing Guinness? Absolutely. I that one. Absolutely. Can you imagine if a court said, I'm not allowed to, to have any bragging rights? Uh, well, and, and by the way, we, we, we are at the uh, Lord Dudley, and we are not actually having a Guinness. No, 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 no. no. So for those people uh, keeping score at home, listen, while we're talking cycling and we're still in Europe, you, of course, uh, literally the day that I was leaving for Korea, you had just returned uh, a few hours earlier um, from the Giro d'Italia. You had a chance to talk to a couple of people there last week. Uh, Gregor Brown, uh, Maddie White was on the show. Um, we also have a few guests this week as well, starting with one Alberto Contador's Soigneux. Uh, not Soigneux, no. he's personal attaché. He's, oh, uh, he's, he's, um, he's wingman off the bike, put it that way. He's... Uh, not just press attaché, but his personal attaché and his, his friend, Jacinto Vidart, who used to be a journalist. And um, he, uh, you know, hooked up with, uh, with Alberto Contador when Alberto first, um, you know, came through in Paris-Nice years ago. And he asked uh, Jacinto to work with him. And uh, anyway, we had a chat with Jacinto. And um, he explained about how they got together, what Alberto's like, uh, what's been really important for Alberto, and he elaborates a bit more about, um, you know, Contador's 
come back from his brain surgery and how he won the stage at Wollonga as a two down under in 2005. And then um, how important that still is to him. He uses that as a reference point even to this day for uh, turning points, major turning points in his career. And he also spoke about how Alberto is a sort of rider that how he uh, combats adversity, whether it's from rivals in a race, whether it's uh, dealing with uh, the more publicised issues of like his doping suspension after he tested positive in 2010. Anyway, it's a pretty in, in, you know, interesting insight into a person that you know, we don't hear from directly in Australia or in English-speaking countries a lot, but Jacinto gave a bit of an uh, interesting... Uh, uh, opened the window into, I think, a bit of the mind of Alberto Contador. Fantastic. Let's go to that interview now before we head off to break. Well, behind every champion cyclist, there is a very important person. And when you're talking about Alberto Contador, there's probably no more important person than Jacinto Vedat. He is his close confidant, his friend, his personal attaché, his Mr. Fix-It. <laughs> Jacinto, thanks for coming on to What A Ride. Um, firstly, just if you could explain um, what type of person is Alberto like? Well, Alberto is a very normal person. Eh? He's, uh, for sure, he's a champion. But uh, at the normal life, he's like everybody. No special... Nothing special, I, I mean. He always uh, loved to be with uh, his friends that are the same than when he was a young. And uh, he still loved to be, when he can, at Pinto. Now he's living in Lugano, in Switzerland, but uh, his life is very normal. You, you uh, when you were a journalist, I mean, yeah. obviously you followed uh, Alberto uh, as a journalist. Um, yeah. Can you explain how, how your relationship came? Because obviously now you're very, very close. Yes. In fact, when I started working with him directly, was just before he exploded as cyclist because I remember that uh, he called me one week before the, his first Paris uh, for start working uh, together and uh, when he won the first stage I told him hey Alberto we were speaking about another another things not not that that is too much work for me <laughs> <laughs> Before that, I, I know him um, when uh, science he started as professional, uh, and uh, before that, everybody uh, spoke in, uh, was speaking in Spain that he was a future champion because he was uh, from the beginning an incredible climber. Mm -hmm. So everybody expected a, lo a lot uh, from him. So everybody knows him more or less. Uh, at that time and me I was working in a sport journal so uh, uh, writing about cycling was the same I know him by everybody that mm, that uh, said how how he ride he used to ride in the little races etc and uh, at then he confirmed very very quickly what kind of cyclist he was because at the, at the first year as professional he won his first time trial curiously 
Okay, I think uh, you know, one of the things uh, a lot of people see about Alberto is his uh, fighting spirit. And um, you've been close with him when, uh, in the uh, big moments, the happy moments. Obviously, there's been some uh, 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 personal moments, you know, like after, the, after his suspension in 2010. How does Alberto handle those moments and what is your job like in those moments? No, to, mm, I think uh, the most important is to be close to him, uh, to support him in some way, like uh, he used to do his family and his friends. You cannot do too much in those difficult moments, that uh, only to be close and let him to speak and to explain what and what are his feelings in that moment uh, to overcome those difficulties. But I think for him the the biggest difficulty was not uh, the time of his suspension. That for sure was very hard for him because at the end uh, uh, was not uh, a real positive. Was another another things. In my opinion, was something political that uh, not a sport. But uh, for him, the most important experience for his life was uh, his uh, stroke and how he's overcome his illness. And, the, and in this case, was very important also his win there in your country. In I, I cannot pronounce uh, in this moment Willang- very well. In Wollonga Hill, he won Willang- the stage. Hill. Uh, okay. Yeah. For him, that reminds his most important victory mm-hmm. and will remind that for forever. So, that is, I think that is his way to overcome difficulties. Mm-hmm. I oh. think is winning. I was going to ask you, I mean, you beat me to it. You're still too good a journalist. But uh, um, that stage victory at Wollonga, and, and I know, it, as you said, it meant a lot to him, but does he still refer to that victory as a, as a starting point? Is it still very... Uh, does it still mean a lot for him? Yeah, 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 that's true. After, after his stroke, that was uh, the first point of the beginning of his career as champion. Um, because there... He realized that uh, he can win again, that he can be a champion, can be a cyclist again. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, he started his, uh, his race again after the illness. We have seen here at the uh, Giro d'Italia, which he has a very good control of, uh, that he can respond to attacks in the race, like Astana and Katusha. He seems to, uh, uh, you know, really fight aggressively. Um, is that something in, in his character that uh, still surprises you? How well he does fight? Uh, not exactly. What is uh, how he's fighting with uh, Astana? That is the strongest team in, in this race. But for me, the example of that was uh, his reaction af- after his crash when he bound uh, his shoulder, etc. That was the criti- the most critical moment of the race, and he reacted like a champion. He he said uh, from the beginning, from the first moment, that I'm thinking on everything but not of abandon the race that is not uh, there is no way for that in, in this moment so he reacted uh, like a champion and then he showed that uh, he's a fight 
We are standing on the finish line of the 19th stage of the Giro d'Italia. It is the very last mountain of this race. Right now, he still has one more mountain to climb to, to the finish here. But then there is the Tour de France. Um, uh, what are your feelings about him and his ability to win both races? Mm, that is uh, an objective really difficult, really, really difficult. Mm, sometimes when when you think about that, you cannot realize how difficult it can be. Uh, now, mm, I, I, I hope he can win the, the Giro, so the half part of the objective is, uh, can, be, can be done, but still remain a lot. Uh, I think that Alberto can, win, uh, can do that, but uh, we will see at the moment until the until the latest, last stage of the tour we cannot say anything more that yet uh, quite um, as calm as is as possible <laughs> <laughs> you think so it's it's going to be very busy for you in july i think anyone who's been on the tour de france knows it's like a circus yeah, um, yeah. how will you uh, be able to do what your job is going to be crazy for for that month of july Yes, yes, uh, I agree with you. But uh, okay, that is uh, the Giro is like a training for that. <laughs> also for also for me, the Giro is more comfortable here. All the people around the race is uh, cycling people. Uh, the difference with the tourists that is bigger, bigger, but also that you find there a lot of people that are not uh, cyclist people that are uh, people that is. You know, on holidays, uh, that come to see the race, a lot of journalists also that come to the to the tour, but that they don't use to write or to speak about cycling. It's another thing. It's more a spectacle or circus in some way than here at the Giro. Um, yeah, you think so, uh, Alberto has said that he will retire after 2016. Um, do you think he will still do that? And if so, what will you do? Mm, I, <laughs> I followed Alberto when he said uh, that that you have to to do the race uh, by day by day. So <laughs> I think on my on my future in the same way. I I, I do things uh, day by day. I I don't want to think on the future. But uh, the future for Alberto, if he finally retired in in 2016, can be. His uh, his team he's doing uh, he has now uh, under under 23 team and a junior team and uh, his objective and his friend objective is to 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 make also a continental or a professional team and to to offer the young people and the young cyclists the possibility in Spain to go from the beginning to the professional uh, cycling on the same school. Uh, I mean, um, that can be also my future in some way. We will see. That's interesting. So, you, you, I mean, you would like to obviously play a part in that. Is it like a, a contribution to, to Spanish cycling, to help Spanish cycling develop back to the level that it used to be? Because it, there have been problems. Yeah, it's for that. Because now in Spain we have uh, very few teams and the opportunities for young people is uh, are be, uh, very few also. So Alberto thought in, in one moment that uh, he can contribute in some way to 
to develop the cycling and, and to find new champions. And it's for that he's uh, working very seriously on that. But now we have to look for a sponsor and for many things that always is difficult. Um, just a couple of more questions because uh, the race is uh, nearing its finish. But um, firstly, uh, Alberto's uh, nickname, El Pistolero. Can you tell us the story of that? That is, uh, in some way, is a misunderstanding. Ah. <laughs> because, because Alberto do that the first time, not for shooting uh, anything. was a kind of uh, a gesture for uh, pointing to his friend. Because uh, his friend asked him, hey, you never, never say, uh, do anything special for us. And you never remember us. And he's, he thought, okay, I, I have to do something. And he he is, he do that uh, kind of of shoot, but wasn't the shoot. Was just a signal uh, that is for you. <laughs> and after that, everybody started to speak about uh, was a pistol, was a shot, uh, and uh, people started to call him the pistolero. Mm-hmm. And then you cannot do anything. <laughs> Does he like the name, or he just accepts it? No, uh, doesn't matter for him. Doesn't matter for him. It's uh, it's a kind of joke. It's not his personality for sure. He's not a a, pistol, a pistolero, but uh, but it's okay. Many people will say on the bike he's a pistolero. The aggressive way that he he races. Uh, maybe it's for that uh, this nickname was uh, everybody used this nickname because his personality on the bike, no? Because he used to attack, etc. No? But but it's good. Now, uh, just very lastly, when, when Alberto wins a, a Grand Tour, I guess he, he celebrates with his teammates, but privately, how does Alberto celebrate? I'm, I'm sure you've seen him privately celebrate. Does he does he uh, do something outrageous? Or, or no, 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 not at all, not at all. He's, uh, no, he's very calm. In the, uh, just at the podium, he, used, uh, he takes the bottle of champagne, and that's the most... Uh, the expression was uh, that after that he do nothing. He's happy for sure, but uh, privately don't do anything special. Just uh, shake hand with the with the world team, and that's all. No no more things. Maybe because he has won now a lot of races, and more or less he do the same many times. Very last question. Uh, obviously, uh, Michael Rogers, being Australian on the team, he has an important role. Can you explain a little bit about Michael's relationship with Alberto? Uh, my opinion, by my opinion, no, it's true. It's a very good relationship because uh, the feeling between them is very good. Uh, Michael is also a rider with a very big experience. He is also very intelligent. He can read the race very well. So he can do the role of uh, road um, captain very well. So for Alberto, having him at the team is a kind of plus, uh, security plus. With him at the, at the race, Alberto feels more secure. And uh, from the beginning, when, when he meet each other, uh, was a kind of... A, a, 
you can see them very comfortable, you know, uh, and they can speak, and in, in some way they understand the race on the same way. So they don't don't need to speak too much for understand what is happening in each moment, and that is very good for him. That's great, Jacinto. Thank you very much for that insight into Alberto Contador, who, uh, as you reminded us in Australia, he's come back, started in Australia, which is uh, something that I think Australian cycling fans feel a strong attachment to. Thank you very much for that, and we really uh, hope Alberto has a great Tour de France. Thank you very much. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back with more What a Ride with Rupert Guinness and Aaron S. Lee. I'm Aaron S. Lee. And I'm Rupert Guinness. Hey, Rupert, fantastic interview. Yeah, well, I told you, Zito Vedat, the uh, personal attaché and close friend, confidant, uh, you know the thing or two about Contador? Yeah, you wouldn't want to say that, that name two or three times fast, would you? Well, we're not going to do it now, are we? <laughs> well, we'll say that for after the show. Okay, for the blooper reel. Jacinto Vedat. Three more times fast. Jacinto, Jacinto, Jacinto. There you go. Good stuff, Mr. Guinness. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, listen, we want to... Hey, by the way, Alberto Condor, as you said already in the show, he, this is a guy that is still... He's riding probably better than he's ever ridden before and obviously a, a clear favorite uh, to, to back up and do the double. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, last time he did in 211, uh, he won the Giro, but he had his uh, win stripped from him because of his 2010 positive... Uh, case, but he also uh, backed up to finish fifth in the Tour de France, so we'll see whether he can do better than that, but as we said, he's one of the big four. Um, well, that, that, that you know, the Astana-Tinkoff-Saxo rivalry, the Giro, was an amazing was an amazing battle to watch. It'll be even more amazing, you throw in a healthy Team Sky with Chris Froome and a, and a healthy Lieutenant Richie Porter, and then of course, yeah. Ruby Starr and Nairo Quintana. Yeah, and don't forget uh, with uh, Contador, there will be Michael Rogers backing up from the Giro as well. Absolutely. And uh, you never know, maybe Rory Sutherland will be riding for the uh, movie star. Yeah. So you can be right there behind uh, Quintana. Uh, it, just Put a, a few, few Aussie wingmen in there. Anything from Orca Greenwich? Can we see a? Can we see one of their young? Well, Simon Yates. We did talk about the criteria for Dauphiné. Yes. You know, Finished fifth. Yeah. Fantastic performance by him and. You know, uh, he, him and his brother Adam and also uh, Esteban Chavez, who rode the Giro, they're the three young riders they've got penciled marked to be potential future Grand Tour contenders. Uh, for Simon Yates, they're looking for him to try and... Uh, and Adam Yates will both be doing the tour, looking for them to try and jag a stage in the mountains. They're not talking about overall classification yet, but they're looking for him to get a stage in the mountains. But you win a stage in the mountains, you usually end up doing pretty well overall. Absolutely. Well, listen, we're going to come back to cycling, man. We've still got Andrew Hood, Hoodie, uh, from Velo News. Andrew Hoodie. Yeah, absolutely, on deck for later in the show. But let's switch gears. Well, last week, we had Phil Rogner on from the editor and publisher of FirstOffTheBike.com. Phil, while we were busy covering all the cycling and the rugby this week, Phil was busy on the ground at Ironman Cans, both for the Ironman Cans and Ironman 70.3. Uh, let's get Phil on the on the phone and let's see what he's got to say about a, an amazing week of triathlon. That sounds like a good idea. How you going, guys? Terrific. Fantastic. But listen, now, while I was in Korea uh, covering the Tour of Korea and Root was back here in Sydney covering a bit of rugby, covering the Dauphiné and a, and a few other uh, events, you were on the ground at one hell of a weekend in Cairns. Yeah, it certainly was. It was. Uh, it's, it's always interesting when you go up to Cairns. I mean, you never know what you're going to get weather-wise. You never know what you're really going to get race-wise. Uh, and I think uh, everybody had fingers crossed uh, 
uh, on race morning. But it's, it's certainly it's, it's a gnarly old day up there in camp. It's not uh, it's not paradise for many of the athletes. I can tell you. Now, Phil, uh, of course, Ironman and the WTC, they put on 70.3 half-distance Ironmans at full distance all over the world, but really, nowhere do they do it on the same day. No, it's one of the few races in the world that actually do run the both races simultaneously. The 70.3 takes off an hour before, and, and you have to think it would, it's, it's, a, it's a money thing because uh, there are 17, 1,800 athletes racing in a 70.3. There's only around about 750 to 800 racing the Ironman. And as it stands alone like that, you certainly just couldn't have uh, a standalone Ironman uh, by itself with that many people. The break-even point for most races is generally considered to be around about 1,200 athletes. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, I remember, uh, like, you know, I've done Melbourne Ironman, and you get the problem... Uh, there. Oh, actually, not so much Melbourne, even uh, in Bustleton, really. You get the problem of uh, on the short circuits and a lot of athletes, and uh, you get the problems of drafting as well. Yeah, it started as wrongly start now, which seems to be catching on in Asia Pacific, uh, where they basically will start everybody in as a rolling start. What you don't get is that big mass group, and so seeded uh, athletes will do that by themselves, they self-seed, and then they basically roll in. It's almost like the freeway where you see the traffic lights going on and they go green red and you get, you know, groups of athletes going through. It certainly makes for cleaner racing at the start, although uh, we did see uh, a couple of penalties handed out uh, in the, uh, the pro field this uh, this time, but uh, certainly for the age group, it's on what I saw, and I was out on course on the back of the motor hanging on for dear life, it, uh, it certainly was a lot cleaner. Well, one thing about it, Phil, the 70.3 started things off, and it was a it was a, a fantastic race with one Sam Appleton and Caroline Stephan. Yeah, look, seriously, Sam Appleton, he is just unbelievable, this kid. He's, uh, he's come out of nowhere. He's sort of had a couple of okay seasons, and he started off this year in Geelong where he, where he raced Craig Alexander one-on-one, and Crowey just got him. He turned the tables in Cairns and got Crowey. You know, he's running 114 off the bike. I mean, it really is. He's starting to become a legitimate hitter. Uh, he's coached by Tim Reed. The two of them squared off against each other uh, this weekend, which was made for funny media fodder. I think everybody enjoyed the byplay between Tim Reed and, uh, and his protege. And uh, the protege stitched up the coach by uh, a few minutes, which was interesting. But the, those top three, Craig Alexander, Tim Reed, and Sam Appleton, you put those guys in a 70.3 race anywhere in the world, and they're going to go top ten. It was a super, super strong setup. Now, are you surprised, given the fact that Crowe has hinted at retirement, especially obviously at the at the full distance Ironman? Or are you surprised to see him con- continue to, to to perform at such a high level? Oh, look, I'm not, guys. You know, this is a guy who's made a career out of being the pros pro, and uh, we do a lot of work with Crowe uh, with some filming stuff that we do up there, and when we go around to Ironman races and. and, and just talking to the guy, he's so well prepared. He's not going to race. If he's in no shape, he won't race. He simply won't do it. When he comes to race, he comes to race. And, uh, you know, even though he's uh, come second to young Sam Appleton, I mean, he still left a lot of guys in his wake. He came out fourth out of the swim. He's super strong still. I think he's got a, a bit to offer still uh, before that. He's 40 plus years of age, and he's got more family commitments, more coaching commitments. Certainly the afterlife is beckoning, but. Boy, I wouldn't be going anywhere in a hurry if I was him. Well, he's got an amazing engine. Now, switching to the, to the ladies' film, now I've got to ask you about Caroline Stefan. Um, now, she's from Switzerland, but is she an Aussie yet? Because it seems like she's more Australian than some of the some of the true born and bred Australian women around here. Yeah, she's one of our favourites, Caroline. She, um, she certainly uh, is 
trains and lives on the Gold Coast, and um, she's, you know, when she's in a happy place, every time I see her, I always up the record, I say, are you happy? She says yes, I know she's in for a blinder, and she certainly seems happy at the moment, and uh, I think getting away in a new structured coaching and that kind of stuff has really helped Caroline. She looks a lot trimmer, if you could say that about her, she just looks stronger, and, you know, we followed her on the moto for a little while, and she just you know, really bludgeoned that course. And uh, Adam Luxford, who was leading the race, got a penalise, uh, was penalised for uh, for drafting off one of the age group men, which, again, will speak volumes of where the sport is in terms of its uh, its commitment to the professional ranks. But certainly uh, that was a, a little bit of controversy. I know that both women were not happy. They've made comments to us on First Off the Bike, which we uh, will be releasing this morning. And, you, you know, they're not wrapped with how the setup is. And Ironman's got to address this. They just cannot be this uh, dilution of the women's field with age group men who push up and get involved in the race and it just can't happen. But Caroline was too strong on the day. Annabelle, to her, uh, you know, to, to her credit, boys, when she came across the line, did say the penalty was bad, but she didn't think she had the legs to beat Stefan. Uh, yeah. Caroline, Stefan, could she be a threat at Kona? You know, it's, it seems like it's been a few years since we've really seen her um, be a true contender. Do you think that she's on track to doing that? I always think she's over-raced. I always, I always think she raced too much. I think if she gets the adequate rest, she may be a podium threat. But, you know, talking to the Bahrain 13 guys who were there, Daniela Riff just, you know, the, the stories coming out about her are, are phenomenal. She sounds frightening with what she can bring to the table. And, I, you know, I uh, I think that uh, Rennie Carfrey and the like and Rachel Joyce and Jodie Swallow and all those women are just going to have to hope that Riff doesn't get hold of that course because uh, the word coming out of the Bahrain team already is that she's doing great things. Well, I, I know that you and I have a bit of a, a, a difference in viewpoint. I believe Mel Hausch may, may surprise a few people on that course. Yeah, it's an interesting theory you have. I just, you know, seeing these women... Hand, I, just, I just don't know if anyone can beat Riff. And I'm saying, we're, we're, we're in June already and we're speculating, which is a beautiful thing about the, the mighty Hawaiian Ironman. You still sit there, you know, throwing darts at this time of the year. You know, how Shield has not really been pushed. She's uh, She gets into that class of women. And, uh, and the women's race now mirrors more of the men's race in the terms that you've got bigger bunches. And so that swim is all important. If they offload her on the swim, she's just not going to see Riff and she's not going to see the likes of Stefan and Joyce and uh, maybe... Uh, not even Carfrey, but the beautiful thing, boys, we'll watch to see how this year unfolds on that side. Well, before uh, I was yeah. going to say, what about the men's uh, Ironman distance race? Luke McKenzie had a had a good win. Yeah, look, McKenzie's hilarious. He he's just um, he's so laid back. He's a really good pro. He, he you know he's like the new Crowley in terms of how he goes about it. We we worked with him a little bit during the week, so we got to see him a number of times. And, you know, very relaxed guy, but there's, a, there's this real streak that once he gets across the line, uh, he gets a little bit white line feverish. And certainly he was uh, on the bike where he put 14 minutes into the likes of Dylan McNeese, into the likes of Cam Brown. Uh, they blew James Kuhnema out of the water, who I thought pre-race was going to be the winner. Um, you know, he was just rock solid, and, he, and he's just so determined to do it. And he did it, boys, with literally no pets on the tank because he spent the uh, entire bike ride, the last 50 k's, vomiting, and uh, as he said, he, he used a beautiful euphemism, rejecting his nutrition, and uh, he did that the whole way around the, the last part of that uh, bike course, and then he was running literally on empty, it was uh, just amazing to watch him go around, and uh, a really good effort, sub three hour marathon at 257, 
The special mention has to go to Cam Brown at 42 years of age. He's run another 252 or 253, I think, to run himself into second place. And uh, hearing uh, Crowley and, uh, and Luke McKenzie talking about uh, Cam Brown, they both said, when he's behind you, it's a scary place to be because he's so metronomic and he's so strong. Well, that's the fantastic thing about Ironman, isn't it, Bill? Because it, obviously it's a, it's a race of attrition. And so these older guys, these older, older athletes that get in the late 30s and early 40s, they still have that engine, don't they? Uh, yeah, they do. And, and it's, it's kind of like when they talk about AFL and NRL and those sorts of sports and soccer to, the, to as well, the world game, where, you know, they start retiring players at 35 and 36, whereas, you know, their engines are still really strong. And triathlon is obviously a non-contact sport if you take out the swim. So they're not getting beaten up like the contact players. They do have a longevity uh, in career, in, of careers. And, and, guys, we have royalty up in Cairns as well. This is an interesting, uh, interesting little sidebar to the race. Well, royalty? Prince Nasser bin Hamad al-Khalifa. <laughs> oh, Aaron, I told you. Didn't I tell you? Yeah, yeah. Well, Rick told me before the show started, and I didn't believe him. him. No. No, he was the, the Prince, uh, Prince Nasser, as everyone called him, uh, he was up there racing. Very respectable. 10.25, he went on race day. Oh, fantastic. Uh, the highlight was the, watching the entourage. I mean, he's ahead of state to be expected. There was 30 or 40 guys around him at, at all times. It well, really was. Uh, now, now, Phil, that's, 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 that's... They have to follow him, though. The entourage has to follow him. They've got to follow him. Rick, they've got to get right on him and follow him. It's, it's yeah. um, could be drafting. Very funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know, but that was serious, guys, and, and it looked, it was very, he was, you know, very relaxed guy. I, I must say that the low light was the FM radio station up there. Uh, their interview of him was just horrifying. It was, I wrote uh, on the website, boys, it was like watching David Brent on the office do a dance. It was that horrifying <laughs> watching uh, those FM guys mm. try and tackle the, the culture differences. They certainly weren't prepared at all, but the Prince, to his credit, rose above. Uh, some shoddy journalism and uh, certainly uh, was uh, you know a very very good ambassador for the sport the locals up there loved him they all you know kids running around saying have you seen the prince have you seen the prince it was a a really uh, interesting uh, scenario for the sport if you're impressed Bill with that kind of entourage you apparently have not seen Rupert Guinness's entourage when he rides (laughs) up to a race now it it, it completely dwarfs that now listen before we go on to Liz Bladford uh, her win um, still on Luke McKenzie I want to get your professional advice you know this was a good win for Luke but really it's the first big result for him since finishing second at Kona two years ago well, you know what? When you when you get a second place, there's only three guys in the last 12 years who have managed to go from second to first. And then, funnily enough, there's three Australians, Crowley, uh, Pete Jacobs, and uh, Chris McCormack. And the only three Australians, or the only three athletes, I should say, to go from second to first. Nasser told me in an interview a couple of uh, weeks ago, he said that when you get to that second place, one of the athletes, they get a swag up, they race differently, they train differently, they change things up to try and make that extra step. In Macca's theory, and this is a theory that clearly works, is that if you've got to second based on what you're doing, you stick to what you know. And, and Lou McKenzie pretty much said the same thing to us uh, over the course of the weekend. He's back to doing what he does best. He's back to doing the things that got him to second place. And look at the results. The results are starting to speak for themselves. Don't, don't get this wrong. This is a huge win for him. It goes massive into uh, the bank of confidence. And it goes massive into the points. And it goes massive into just the understanding that what I'm doing is correct. And I have, again... Regain so, the, the fire. So what what does he do now between now and, and Kona? Look, hopefully he won't need to do another Ironman uh, race. He did pick up points in Kona last year. He'll monitor his points, keep an eye on it. Let's hope he just puts it away. Doesn't need to do another Ironman. 
and uh, and get some good miles on his legs because uh, you know he's shown that outside of that three miles in the energy lab a couple of seasons ago with Freddie Van Lee dropped him, he's got all the talent to win this race and he's got that steel that you need. He's got that you know that bit of mongrel in him that uh, really uh, shows. And he had to fight for this win, as I said, running on empty stomach upset. He had to fight for this win. And, and mentally, it must just be good when he gets it done. Now, watching him at the finish line, uh, he certainly uh, was excited and ecstatic. And then seeing him 15 minutes afterwards, literally lying in the gutter, uh, trying to get a coke in, you know, you know that he pushed himself to the absolute limit. Well, somebody that, that speaking of someone that pushed themselves to the limit, obviously the, the women's winner, uh, Liz Blatchford. Were you surprised? No, not at all. Liz Blatchford is a class house, there's no doubt. You know, she was always going to do a two-up time trial with Gina Crawford. Uh, Michelle Bremer, who came third, was a fantastic result given she'd won Ironman Australia only six weeks ago. Uh, she told us that she basically just uh, rotated the legs over a few times. But, you know, someone like Liz Blatchford is such a talent. And, uh, again, she's also hit the podium in Kona and she knows what it's like. She strayed from that again, didn't have the greatest race last year. He's back on the same program. This is what they need to do. If it works, don't you know, don't break it, don't break it up, it, it seems to work. She's someone though who got penalised and there's a little bit of controversy around what she did. She cut a boy um, and had to serve a four minute penalty. Um, and again, as, as a testament to her state of mind, boys, there was no panic, there was no histrionics. Um, you don't want to play poker against her because you'd never know what she's thinking. Um, you know, occasionally uh, you get a, a sort of a wry smile as she comes past you, but certainly it is all business. And the U Place team that she's a part of is all business as well. They're a very good team, very well run, and, um, you know, they, their athletes are uh, super well drilled. And, and she's a class act. She's always going to swim well, and she's always going to ride okay, you hope. And then uh, it all comes down, obviously, to that marathon, and she was able to hold on in, uh, you know, in some pretty average conditions. It started to get wet, it was humid, it wasn't, it wasn't that fun out there. Uh, Phil, always fantastic insights from you on what a ride. Hey, listen, real quick before you go, um, what can we find on firstoffthebike.com this week? What's going on? Well, we'll, uh, we'll actually uh, just get mulching through all of the stuff that we did for, uh, for Cairns, including we've got a, a finish line video that if you haven't ever seen you know, a few minutes of the Ironman finish line, you just need to take a look at it. It's just it's spine-tingling, and it gives you an idea of what it means to cross the line. It's beautifully shot by C2 Films. Uh, who does all of our shooting and uh, our race highlights package are 70.3 uh, bike package is really cool we can see guys like Crowley and Caroline Stephan just monstering the bikes there's a lot on there to take a look at and to read and uh, you know uh, we may even see a couple of uh, little numbers from yourself now which uh, always is enjoyed by uh, our wonderful readers oh fantastic love being a part of it and one of my favourite things on the site always especially when you guys rock up to the events live is of course the bike gallery so for all the, the listeners out there and fans of triathlon or just fan of cycling and bikes period it's a good way to get your bike porn in yeah, it's, it's fun, you know, like everybody loves it. We, we're adding a bike weigh-in section uh, in the next day or so as well. So if you're interested to know what these bikes weigh, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a real enthusiast, I'll tell you now, there ain't no uh, Alberto Contador 6.2 kilo climbing bikes there. They are uh, pretty heavy machines. Like the biggest what? one we had was over 10 kilos. Well, not, 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 to get, not to get Alberto Contador in trouble. 6.7, Phil, 6.7. Sorry, 6.7, my bad. <laughs> hey, Phil, hey, thank you so much, but we'll, ha- we'll hope to have you on again next week. Thanks, guys. Good on you, Phil. Thank you. I mean, Rube, come on, Phil Rockman, firstoffthebike.com, on the ground in cans, fantastic insights. If we, if, I'll tell you what, it's the next best thing to be in there.
Yeah, oh, it is. I mean, he knows his stuff. Oh, he knows his stuff. And again, if you if you guys are interested in, in knowing more about Iron Man seventy point three cans or, or the the full Iron Man cans or to see the bike gallery or or some of the the fantastic articles on there, I think he mentioned a couple oh. of mine maybe on there as well. And we got our mascot is is out there. Phil was uh, talking about mongrels. Yeah, talking about mongrels. We got one in the studio. Was that Luke McKenzie? <laughs> Absolutely. You can always check it out on firstoffthebike.com. When we come back, we're switching back to cycling on our last segment of What a Ride. Until then, stay tuned for these messages.
back to What a Ride with Rupert Guinness and Aaron S. Lee. I'm Aaron S. Lee. And you guessed it, I'm Rupert Guinness. <laughs> Absolutely. We're back for our final segment of the show this week. Hey, listen, we want to thank you guys for joining us. We are coming to you live, or recorded live, actually, from the Lord Dudley here in Willard. This is where it all began for us uh, a long time ago as far as our, our little uh, uh, duo. Um, it's not and, finished yet, No, it's not. We're just uh, hopefully just getting started and uh, having a lot of fun. And we, we, of course, appreciate you guys joining the ride with us and coming on the journey. Uh, we're going to go back to cycling, as we mentioned, go back to Europe. One of our favorite people, uh, colleagues, uh, we actually had Gregor Brown on uh, last week, which was uh, great to get his insights, especially on living in, in Italy and the culture yeah. and, and what that's like. Uh, this week we've got one, uh, Andrew Hood from Velo News. Yeah, Andrew Hood, uh, a.k.a. in Twitter land, Euro Hoodie. Yes. Um, and uh, he's the European cor- no, European correspondent for Velo News. He is. And he's he American. Is, he's American, and he lives in Lyon in uh, Spain. Absolutely. And he's got the gig that I used to have. Yeah, he but, does. Um, you know... He's been at it for quite a while now. He knows his stuff as well, would he? Yeah. And caught up with him during the Giro again. And we used to travel together for a lot of years. We used to share rooms together, but we won't go there. Well, I'll tell you, the, the great thing about having Hoodie on the show is, of course, is that he's the co-host I really wanted. So it's great to have him on the show. And, uh, he's not reliable, inside. though, trust me. <laughs> Oh, you live in Spain. He's full of sleep now. Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's go to that interview now, Rude. Yeah, let's do that. He, you know, we had a good chat about a lot of stuff. And uh, anyway, you'll hear what he has to say. Fantastic. Here we go. Well, I'm here with Andy Hood from Velo News, one of the world's leading cycling publications. Uh, Andy, welcome to What a Ride. Now, tell us a bit about yourself and your job. You're on the road for most of the year in Europe as fellow news as European correspondent. Just to give us a little quick spin, excuse the pun, <laughs> about what your job's about. Yeah, it's been interesting. Uh, the job has actually evolved over the years. Uh, I kind of came in behind on your footsteps, actually. You kind of blazed the way there, Rupert. And uh, I came in kind of uh, right after the initial wave of the internet hits. And I started full-time with Velo News in 2002, so the internet had been around for a while in those days. And back, back in those days, it was all about just trying to get information out as fast as possible, the results, what someone said, the finish line, the latest news and scandals. And now it's been kind of a, a, a circle back to uh, the days of almost being a journalist again because, you know, with Twitter, we talked about this before, how Twitter now is the instantaneous source of news. Like, who's in the breakaway today? It's like, you're going to look at Twitter and find out. So the story we chase these days now is, you know, uh, you know perhaps the story inside that breakaway, you know, the story behind the little headline, the story behind the grab. So it's been uh, almost a full circle when I started, first started doing this back in the mid-90s. Uh, you know, those are the kind of stories we used to write. The job changed, uh, and, and now we're back writing those deeper, more interesting stories. And that's what kind of keeps me around, and, and then also cycling. You know, like we always say, you can't make these stories up, can you? That's true. That's too true, Andy. But I guess the other part of it is also that, uh, unlike other sports where you may be at a football stadium or you may be at a at a track um, uh, venue or a swimming pool, you know, an established venue, cycling is always mobile. And to be on the circuit, you've got to travel with the circuit. You've got to live and breathe it. You're in the same hotels as teams and riders. Um, you know, just, just describe a little bit about how that operates and some of the challenges you face. Yeah, you have to be a, a, a great car driver. <laughs> Even just today you saw, you know, we started at the base of a, of a Cat 1 climb, drove over two of those today. 
Uh, now here we are at the top of the Aprica Summit uh, here at the Giulia Italia. And that story repeats itself every day. The Tour de France, Welta España, the classics. You have to, I remember back in the day when we didn't even have GPS. That, that made for some uh, frustrating moments. But now it's a lot easier. And plus, you know, once you're on the road, you just follow the, 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 the route directions, which make it a little bit easier if you have a credential on your, on your sticker. But it's a lot of miles. I mean, you do uh, 5,000 kilometers in a Grand Tour, if not more. A lot of transfers. A um, lot of really bad hotels. Uh, you know, Richie Port got a camper van this year. The year, and everyone was kind of thinking, "Oh, that, that's a little too uh, too too uh, puff, puffy or too snobby, whatever the word is." And uh, but, you know, we're all envious, though. I mean, I love to sleep in a camper every night, and so would everybody else in the Peloton, because most of the hotels. When I wake up every morning, with a sore back because the 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 sofas or the, the the mattresses are too soft or too hard or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's a labor of love. I did an interview this year with uh, Vegni, the, the Giro director, and he he started to describe how you know every day it's, I almost have a heart attack every day. The stress, the confusion, the the, the polemica. He goes, you couldn't do this without it being a labor of love, and I, I think that's true for journalists as well. Uh, I think one of the things you've also seen is the evolution of the sport from, uh, I guess we call you know the dark period. You know, with the uh, with the doping issues, um, and it's evolved also now. We, I guess we'll never. I certainly will never say it's totally clean, but just you know, the the um, the way from inside a race or from inside the sport, you know, the interpretation of of, of all that has that been a, a challenge, or how do you feel that uh, the problems of doping or the issue of doping, you know, is being covered? Yeah, it's been interesting because. Um I think we had a couple of years there, you know, I think really around 2010, 11, 12, maybe even to 2013, where it just you get the general sense that, that the Peloton didn't know how to race anymore because the biological passport came into effect. Um, from what I understand, there was almost a, an unspoken uh, gentleman's agreement among the big teams to say, okay, you know, if we want to have this sport to continue, we got to change our ways. And I think there was kind of a uh, uh, an agreement that, that they're going to try to race clean. You know, who knows how much that is true, but we could see, you know, very dramatically the style of racing has changed, and um, you know, certain teams that were kind of the cutting edge of that. Uh, you know, maybe going back to even Garmin and HTC Columbia High Road, 2008 and nine. You know how they focused on team time trials, the sprints, stuff like what Green Edge is doing right now. Um, and then you got uh, Sky came in with some really cutting-edge kind of uh, technology on top of that philosophy. And now we're looking at the sport, and these guys are going faster than they've gone perhaps in the in the, in the Epo era. You know, the speeds on the climbs are, uh, you know, same as Pantani. So people are having a hard time getting their heads around, uh, you know, can we believe what we're seeing? And I personally believe, I think it's it has legitimately changed from within. But I think, uh, you know, right now, it's not as clear as it was a few years ago. I think there's a lot of uh, uncertainty about exactly what is happening in the Peloton. You know, have, you know, we hear these stories about microdosing, ways of getting around the biological passport, manipulating the biological passport. That's a story I'm trying to get my head around. And, and to tell the truth, I don't, I don't have an answer for that right now. Okay, now, um, you know, I guess, I guess what we've all seen, I guess every country uh, experiences, you know, when you see emerging stars from your country or a, a wave of young riders coming through. And I guess every country is hoping to get the next star, the next Tour de France winner or Giro winner or Classics champion. Um, obviously, here in, in Australia, we've had that. We've fortunately managed to get at least one winner, our first winner, Cadell Evans. And there's been a lot of expectation and guys like Richie Port and other riders coming through. In the U.S., 
you've had that as well. I mean, obviously, you know, Greg LeMond being, you know, the the the, the, uh, the, the frontier man there on that front, and and you've seen riders come through. I mean, uh, a lot of people may say there's too much expectation or pressure put upon these emerging stars, but then I've often believed that, yeah, sure, there's a lot of pressure, but that's part of their job too. You know, you get paid to race, you get paid to represent your team and sponsors and everything. How do you find the balance between not pumping up someone, but, you know, giving some energy and some positive sort of feel about this is a guy we've got to watch for, as against overloading him with too much pressure? Yeah, it's always an interesting balance. Uh, It's never easy because... You want to write about uh, the guys from your home country. You know, you write about Richie Port, and I'm writing about Talansky and Van Garderen for the American audience, for the Australian audience. And uh, it's interesting, too, to see how different writers and personalities deal with that pressure. Some people feed off of it. You know, you saw guys, perhaps like Armstrong, it was just more fuel for his, his megalomania to, to crush everyone. And some of the guys uh, repel against it, like I think, uh, Van Garderen is almost kind of like Cadell Evans was. You know, he didn't like that spotlight on him. He just wanted to race his bike and do his hard work and, and not have everyone criticizing him all the time. And I think it takes certain riders a little a little while to get used to being in the public eye. And as journalists, you know, we certainly contribute to that. Um, at the end of the day, I think you just have to be, as a journalist, you just try to respect these guys as well. As uh, you know, they have to have a little bit of space to make errors, to learn their job, to learn how to race a Grand Tour. And when things go uh, uh, sideways, you know, you can't dump on them. Uh, I think that's an easy thing to do, especially in the age of Twitter. It's just uh, some off-the-cuff comments, but then cause a lot of damage. But I think uh, if you know if you're a legitimate journalist, you kind of uh, you're looking at why things went wrong, putting them in the context of why things went wrong, and uh, looking at uh, you know the whole process. You know, it's not just uh, you show up at the Giro and then you're gonna win. You know, these guys have been working at this stuff for six months, and uh, that's that's a that's a road that uh, you know it takes many many years to get to get to this level. Of a grand tour. I mean, guys. Some guys are just good at it from birth. I mean, Coltador, you know, he's a crack. I mean, he he's been winning uh, since he was 22, 23. Uh, same guy like like uh, like uh, Aru, you know, is already very good. And everybody just deals with it in a different way. I'm not. I'd hate to be in that position. I'm not, I would be one of these guys that would just hate the journalists. <laughs> I, I, I think you're right with uh, Alberto Contador. I think I think he was born with his legs pedaling. Yeah. I think they came out first, and he was pedaling. <laughs> You can picture that, can't you? Anyway, but um, um, uh, obviously, like we're talking here now in the, in the uh, last week of the Giro d'Italia, at this stage finished to Africa, stage 16. The Tour de France is not too far around the corner. Now, a lot of people sort of discuss, you know, which is the, the hardest race or the best race between the two Grand Tours, notwithstanding the Vuelta Espana being the, the third um, of the three. Uh, you know, from what I've experienced in my years covering the Tour, you, what's really hard about the Tour de France is the circus of it, the pressure. It's summer, it stinks, it's hot, sweaty nights. That, And I don't think you can underestimate the impact on a rider that that has. Whereas here in the Giro, I guess you've got the craziness of the Giro, the uh, uncertainty of decision-making by commissaires or the race jury, the weather changes within an hour, half an hour, you're in a valley or up a mountain. What do you feel uh, is the difference between the two races? It may differ from what I feel, but also do you, which do you think is the, is the best or the biggest prize to win? 
Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, the, the pressure. I mean, to me, the two deciding the things that make the Giro, or the tour are so much harder than the Giro would be the the pressure that's put on the uh, tour, both from all elements, from the public, from the media, from the sponsors, from within the prestige of the, of the sport. But also, I think that. Um, what makes the tour the hardest race of the year is that every single rider in that race is on their A game and to make the tour selection is you have to be the best guy on your team to get on that nine man squad and that's from the guys that are the so called water carriers to the lead out guys to the guys that are pulling the medium mountains obviously to the uh, to the GC leaders or the sprinters you know that is the absolute peak and apex of the sport every season so the general level across the tour is just that much higher than, say, the Giro, where you do, you know, get a couple of good guys on each team. I mean, there's a couple of guys that are younger guys getting their first taste of Grand Tour, or guys, you know, who are coming off and filling in for someone who's injured or whatever. And the overall just level and speed of the tour is what really makes the tour that much harder. It's every every pedal stroke counts. Um, obviously, this sport is not all so serious. You, I think you have to learn how to. You do get chances to laugh, and you have got to laugh at yourself as well. Otherwise, you'd go crazy. Um, without you know, incriminating myself, give us a few examples of some of the funny times that you've experienced in the sport, and some of the wacky characters out there. Oh my gosh, it's uh, that 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 is kind of what uh, you know the oxygen that kind of keeps you going. Because if you get overwhelmed by by you know you're you're away from home, uh, you're staying in terrible hotels, you're eating well in in, in, in Germany, in, in Italy at the Giro, we're eating great food. I'm getting fat at this race, but normally at the Tour, you know, I'm losing weight because the food is pretty damn bad. You have to admit. Um, but yeah, it's just crazy, funny things happen, uh, absurd things. I remember one time, uh, I don't know if you were in the car with us that night. Uh, we got the flat tire with David Walsh was there and Sam Apt and we were trying to change that flat tire in the middle of France like in the middle of the night it was like midnight we, you know, it was like a Three Stooges comedy sketch there to, us trying to figure out how to change the, the Peugeot spare tire you know and just stuff like that it's just, it's just wacky uh, you know the intensity of experiences you feel in these grand tours and kind of creates a sense of brotherhood I think among uh, everyone in this kind of traveling circus yeah, I remember one time, uh, you know, uh, I came into a race. I go, where's Rupert? I haven't seen him. And there's Rupert underneath the media table sleeping. <laughs> I said you weren't going to... There's another Rupert, obviously. Yeah, there's been a different Rupert. <laughs> but, yeah, there's always just kind of uh, funny, absurd, absurd stories like that. It could be a good book title, actually. It could be a good book subject there, Rupert, perhaps. We'll talk about it. <laughs> actually, Andy, I remember we did, I mean, we did share a number of years. We used to share rooms, didn't we? But... Uh, you remember when we uh, had to share a car to sleep in overnight? You know, we got uh, we didn't have a hotel room. We slept on the on the highway. You know, and people don't realise that sort of stuff yeah. happens. And at the time, you, even then, you got to sort of laugh at it, even though you feel like pulling your hair out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was the one story of a journalist whom, uh, uh, you know, uh, a big time American sports journalist who will remain unnamed uh, to protect the guilty. You know, he showed up, uh, you know, in the Armstrong craze and started covering the tour and he was he just literally lost his mind a few times he goes this is the craziest hardest wildest sport i've ever covered he covered the super bowl and the olympics and all these world tour world level uh events and one day uh, he shows up in the uh, press room with a black eye 
And we go, uh, like, man, what, what happened? Did you get in a bar fight? He goes, no, I, got, I couldn't find my damn hotel. And I got so pissed off, I punched myself in the face. I think so, you know. Sometimes you got to just got to go with the flow. I'm sure he probably understands that now, doesn't he? You know, <laughs> at least he didn't turn up with two black eyes. <laughs> he learnt. Hey, Andy, look, it's been really good talking to you, mate. And uh, you know, thanks for coming on. What a ride! It's, you know, it's, you know, it's, the experiences I've shared with you has been a hell of a ride. Um, you know, just wondering whether well, one last word about you know for the Tour de France. What are you are you hoping for this year's race? Is it a certain result, or is it a certain way the race will unfold, or, or is there some big thing you'd like to see happen? Yeah, I'm just hoping the. Uh, the, the Fantastic Four all get into the into the gritty deep part of the race. You know, we all want to see that Froome, Contador, uh, Quintana, uh, Nibali showdown. You know, that's that's you know, the tour hasn't had that real awesome true fight like that in a long time. Actually, we had you know Armstrong dominated, and then uh, you know even the last couple of years, you just had uh, Froome and, and Sky and Wiggins kind of just you know really plastering everyone. Uh, you know, Nibali last year was immaculate. I mean, he rode the perfect tour. You know, of course, uh, Froome crashed, Contador crashed, Quintana wasn't there. So that's what I just want to see is all four of those guys get into the mountains and really just go mano a mano. And, and survive those crashes, survive that treacherous uh, bad luck that takes these guys out like Richie Porter the Giro this year. And just really just see it, a great tour. Andy, that sounds great, mate. The hairs on the back of my neck. I haven't got it in my head anyway. But the hairs on the back of my neck are up just thinking about that prospect. Uh, thanks again, mate. And uh, hopefully, you know, you'll be available to uh, join us on Water Ride down the road. You'll find me at the Press Buffet. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Oh, I will. Thanks, mate. Bye. Always good to hear from Andrew. I feel like uh, I feel like he was here in the room with us, and of course, um, like he was just here yesterday for the tour down under. Yeah, well, uh, it wasn't that long ago, was it? But uh, I'll be seeing him shortly over in the tour and uh, the Tour de France. And some interesting insights from Hoodie. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's been, you know, when you when you hear him talk about all the stuff he's done, he's been through uh, the highs and lows of, of cycling, and uh, you know, obviously coming back to Australia, we get to sort of. Uh, yeah, in between the big races, we get to sort of escape it a bit and dip my head back into a rugby scrum or whatever, and it gives you a bit of mental release. But, you know, as part of his job as the European correspondent for Bellinews, he's got to live and breathe every day of the sport, whether it's a great day or a bad day. And as we know, and as Woody spoke about, there's been some bad days he's had to report about as well as good ones. But uh, I know for a fact he's had a good time along the way. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, we've had a good time along the way as well. Another have. episode of What a Ride. We want to thank uh, uh, Caleb Buen for, for being on the show. Obviously, uh, most recently there, Andrew Hood. We've had Alberto Contador's camp um, on the show as yes, well. Yes, it's over <laughs> There you go. Thank you, Rupert, for, for saving me on yes. that. Yes, 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 <laughs> Absolutely. And, of course, our good friend in the in the triathlon world, Phil Rockner from firstoffthebike.com. Um, I'm, I guess that's it. I, look, I'm Aaron Lee. And I'm still Rupert Guinness, even after this show. And thank you for joining us on What a Ride.